0: Chris Hyams, CEO of Indeed. My pronouns are he and him. And welcome to the next episode of Here to Help. For accessibility, I'll offer a quick visual description. I am a middle-aged man with dark-rimmed glasses. I'm wearing a blue t-shirt. And behind me is the North Austin skyline. At Indeed, our mission is to help people get jobs. This is what gets us out of bed in the morning and what keeps us going all day. And what powers that mission is people. Here to help is a look at how experience, strength, and hope inspires people to want to help others. My guest for this episode is Dr. Safia Noble, internet studies scholar and professor of gender studies, African-American studies, and information studies at the University of California at Los Angeles. At UCLA, Dr. Noble serves as the faculty director of the Center on Race and Digital Justice and co-director of the Minderoo Initiative on Tech and Power at the UCLA Center for Critical Internet Inquiry. Dr. Noble is a board member of the Cyber Civil Rights Initiative, serving those vulnerable to online harassment, and the Joint Center for Political and Economic Studies, the nation's oldest black think tank. I was first introduced to Dr. Noble's work through her extraordinary book, Algorithms of Oppression, How Search Engines Reinforce Racism. At its core, Indeed is a search engine, and I've been immersed in this field for more than a dozen years, but Dr. Noble's work helped me to think about search engines in a completely new light. Our conversation was far ranging, deeply insightful, and I only wish we had another hour to keep going. Dr. Noble explains very clearly that search engines are not neutral, but rather are designed and operated by people with their own biases and values. And these in turn are often shaped by broader social and cultural forces. And of course, right at this very moment, advancements in artificial intelligence like OpenAI's ChatGPT, chat, GPT are front and center in the news. And we discuss the implications of these so-called large language models on education and society and how much more difficult it will ultimately be to disentangle racism and bias the larger and more complex these systems become. Dr. Noble, thank you so much for joining me today.
1: Thanks so much, Chris. It's really great to be here with you.
0: Fantastic. Well, we have uh, we have a lot to cover today, but I'd, I'd love to start by talking about the book "Algorithms of Oppression." It was uh, published in 2018, and you focus on the power and influence of search on society. And you you open the book with this statement: "I believe that artificial intelligence will become a major human rights issue in the 21st century." And so, right now, that seems pretty much on the nose, and we'll definitely get to the current state of AI in a bit, but I, I'd like to back up and just really talk about um, the thesis of the book and the impact that search engines have had on the world and, and really what inspired you to write this book.
1: Yeah. <clears throat> you know, when you write a book about the internet, you uh, assume that it will immediately be out of date, and and it is kind of odd to me that this book and some of the arguments are holding up, um, and that's not what you want, right? You want a book about the terrible things to fade away. <clears throat> in fact, and uh, and be solved. So we're not there yet. But I, I will tell you. You know, I went back to graduate school. I started my first career in corporate America, and um, part of the reason I did that is because I felt like there are people who work in industries of many types. Really have a lot of uh, influence, and sometimes outsized influence, on um, what our communities look like. So when I, as the economy, you know, was crashing and the recession was coming, and everybody I knew was losing their jobs in advertising and marketing, I went back to grad school, and now I go into a PhD program at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. It's this um, you know, STEM-oriented university with all these information scientists getting a PhD in library and information science, really wanting to think about and talk about the internet. And everyone around me was talking about this new company, Google. And I was um, surprised that the librarians were ceding so much space to search engines because I really understood them as advertising platforms. And it was really there in that disconnect that I was like, I, I think, well, like every good grad student, you're looking for a good thing to to do research on. Um, I was like, this is, seems like think, something I should write about, this,
0: this dissonance, this disconnect. Can you define, for folks that haven't had a chance to read the book, and everyone who's listening should definitely read this book, uh, can you define algorithmic oppression?
1: Okay, so one of the things that I was arguing, this is, again, 2010- 11, 12, I was <clears throat> conducting a series of kind of experiments on, uh, you know, doing searches and looking to see what kind of results come back to the first page. I would just ask questions like, why are black women So why are black girls? So why, why are, why is any group? So anything that would be very interesting to see like the auto suggestions. And, you know, this is like the cover of the book. It's like, the first thing is why are black women so angry? Right. And this kind of idea that um, uh, we're mean, lazy, you know, angry, I saw a pattern. And the pattern was, if you were a woman or girl of color, especially a girl of color, you were almost exclusively represented, misrepresented with pornography. Now, you didn't have to add the word sex. You didn't have to add the word porn. Black girls, Latina girls, Asian girls were just synonymous with porn. Um, I also saw that many of the kinds of stereotypes and, and results that would come back really mapped onto racist tropes we hold in our society. And, you know, I, ha- I was... My undergraduate degree was in sociology. I'd spent many years around African-American studies and ethnic studies, gender studies. Um, so I actually really understood what I was looking at, not as an anomaly, <clears throat> but that these ideas had kind of been baked in at the level of code. Someone had coded the this project called the search engine, um, many people, in fact, thousands of people over time. And... Um, these kind of discriminatory ideas were normalized, flattened, kind of naturalized in the search results. And I called that algorithmic oppression, because what I was saying is that the algorithms themselves are a function of and reinforce oppression in our society, vis-a-vis racist stereotypes and other kinds of damaging ideas in society. And more importantly, not only do they do that in a kind of this automated way, they're coded and, and they're automated, but they're naturalized under the auspices of just being math, right? Or it's just tech, like it's because, you know, at the, in those days, what people would say to me when I presented my research was, Safia, um, algorithms can't be racist because algorithms are just math right? And math can't be racist. So this is like a hyper reductionist way of thinking about algorithms and AI. And, you know, to me now, you know, then I didn't have the right retorts. I would just say like, that's not true. Um, you know, these these algorithms are actually holding all kinds of different types of biases. Um, that's common sense knowledge now. But I will tell you that in 2010, that was not common sense understanding. People would get very angry with me at academic conferences, men would shout at me. I need like that on a t-shirt, men shout at me at conferences. But that was kind of the idea here, um, because it was very difficult to understand the kind of social, political, ethical dimensions of AI and algorithms. And I coined the term algorithmic oppression just as a way to kind of say, like, the algorithms are also doing things. That do contribute to oppression in our society,
0: thinking about the response to to the book and 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 to your work and men yelling at you in conferences at at the conferences. Um, so there's been you know massive pushback and backlash around anything uh, you know, equity um or 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 justice related in in tech. And sort of like the word woke has become an epithet, and um, CRT has been totally demonized. How do you respond in the face of of that type of of sort of rhetorical onslaught?
1: You know, if you look at these origins, and I won't I won't bore you with a lecture on this, but these ideas about Black people, you know, our telling each other to kind of stay woke is really to stay aware of dangerous spaces and places and people as you move about, right. You can like, I think the first time I just heard a lecture, someone talking about the first time that the term woke was used was like in the 1800s, like, you know, it was like the late 1800s or the early 1900s where, um, a blues artist was like, you know, telling black people as we were moving about, like, be careful out here because of racism and racists and you might get lynched and like, stay woke. Um, so that, that through line is still true and, um, making a mockery of that, you know, is just so sad to me. It's just such a sad commentary that rather than, um, make fun of or deride or make unfashionable being racist, instead there's like a discourse now of people who notice racism being the problem. Now, you know, I'm from, I told you, I already told you I'm from the nineties. So, you know, this is not new. This is old. I mean, this idea of, um, that, uh, and this is kind of like the colorblind ideologies that, you know, came into vogue in our generation, I'm assuming in your generation. Um, that we're kind of like, if you see racism, you're the racist, rather than like if you experience it and you try to intervene upon it or stop it, that that's actually the thing we want. Um, Helen Neville, who's a professor at, at the U of I, she's a, a psychologist and she does all these studies on people who adopt colorblind ideology, the people who say, I'm not, I don't see color. And her experiments show over and over and over again that people who adopt a colorblind ideology are more racist and more willing to tolerate racism on their watch. So we've done a disservice to a whole generation of people who feel like disempowered to talk about race and racism in our society because they've kind of adopted this colorblind stance. Their parents felt it was impolite. To talk about race or racism. So they just shished them and shished that out of them. So, what's that? What that's left are people who are um, virulent racists, who've actually taken over the discourse around, um, you know, collapsing that with like their free speech, their rights to um, say and do anything they want, weaponizing the internet and social media in service of that. Um, and that those who speak back. Are actually the problem. And, you know, I'm, I think of a study by Tiara Tanksley, who um, is a professor at the University of Colorado at Boulder. And she studied college age black women who um, dealt with these kinds of um, hostile engagements. They would go into their social media, all of it, and there would be people just like calling them woke, just like attacking them, um, making fun of viral videos of Black people dead or dying. Um, and these women would go in and try to do battle in the comments because they felt that those that these kinds of attacks that you're talking about, um, this kind of um, harsh, inhumane way of engaging was um, they you know they felt they couldn't let it stand on their watch they couldn't just let it be there, and and they would spend up to eight hours a day in between work in between classes before they went to bed when they woke up on their phones commenting and they had self reported PTSD they were suffering from depression you know they were really struggling and so the effects of that kind of um, hostility toward people who are trying to just speak about their lived experiences is part of, like, the challenge. And I think because Silicon Valley, in particular, you know, lacks in diversity, it lacks in hiring Black and Latinx and Indigenous people, it um, doesn't have the sensitivity. And I think you couple that with people who feel afraid to speak or talk about racism, because they've adopted colorblind ideologies, you just leave a cesspool. And, you know, unfortunately, I think that, um, you know, that has happened. Of course, billionaires have also given so much money to far right-wing organizations, think tanks, um, councils, researchers, that um, those people also have been extremely well-funded and they're able to um, really see this narrative so much so that now it's illegal in some places to talk about things like critical race theory, which is really just erasing Black people from history books. Um, it's really just ensuring that the history of racism also is not discussed. And, you know, the things we don't discuss, we're doomed to repeat for sure.
0: If you like this interview and want to hear more, hit subscribe. Catch up on any Here to Help episodes you might have missed, like my conversation with Julia Hatton, and get new ones delivered directly to you. More with Sophia Noble after this break. I, I want to sort of bring us a little bit to the, to the present day, and it's impossible to, to talk about any of these issues without talking about AI, um, which is not new, but it is certainly um, in, in the public imagination right now, and especially the, the very recent um, revolution of large language models like OpenAI's chat GPT. Um, can you talk a little bit about what you're talking with your students about right now?
1: For some students who feel that writing is an incredible struggle for them, they're not oriented or they haven't, just haven't been trained as as, as strong in, in those kind of writing intensive fields, ChatGPT is like the miracle they prayed for. <laughs> you know, it really is going to. And some of my colleagues think that this will even the playing field, let's say, for the engineering students or the math students or the STEM students who are writing a verse. There are others who absolutely understand this. the consequences of it. I think there are people who are really struggling, students are really struggling with the morality. Am I plagiarizing? Am I, is this a tool or is this a replacement for the intellectual work that I should be doing? I think we are not going to be able to get away from teaching students what these projects are. And what their limits are, and the same way that I taught a whole generation of students about search engines by making them do searches and seeing the limits, and um, you know, I'm I'm doing that now with ChatGPT. Um, probably the one thing that I try to get the students to resist is this is this kind of anthropomorphization. Of AI, like thinking of it like it's a human, or thinking of it like it's superhuman or better than human, that probably is one of the most dangerous um, ideas around these types of AI. And so that, um, of course, there are all these other ethical issues around copyright, around sucking in all the you know data that could be made available, which that data is also people's life's work of art of writing, you know, of, of all kinds of things that people have struggled in for centuries to make. Um, so it's a very interesting and important moment that we're living through right now.
0: Yeah. And I think, you know, one of the, the potential dangers of anthropomorphizing or thinking of these things as smart is that, um, there can be a, a, a fine line between thinking something is is smart and thinking that it's, objective and true. So I guess my, my 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 question is what kind of critical lens can we bring to I guess our interactions with a system like this?
1: It's so interesting because I asked my first question of um ChatGPT was um who are the investors in Chat GPT and OpenAI? Then <laughs> I was like, who else? You know, is there anyone that you're leaving out? Um What about companies? Who owns those companies? Like, I used it like that. So, I asked it for, um, give me some citations on Black digital feminism, digital Black feminism. And it gave me back all of these citations that looked really legitimate, except I'm an expert in this field. And so, I knew they were not. I knew they were made up. I could tell. So, it was like real journal articles. Real journal titles, like New Media and Society, that's a big journal in our field. But the article was not real. It was fake. And the authors were like a mix of names of people in the field, like combining their names. So I knew, I was like, oh, no, now this is actually where we're going to be in trouble. Because people are going to ask for the citations, you know, they're going to ask for the receipts and the fake receipts are going to come. The challenge here is going to be disambiguating. But, you know, we have those challenges already of disambiguating fact from fiction. I mean, in other digital media systems, I mean, social media is a perfect space. Uh, YouTube, g- Google search, other kinds of search. Um, so I think one of the, um, the, the problems that we fail to kind of see with this is, it's twofold. Um the large language models are so much, they're going to be so much larger than the container of the kinds of things in search. And we, you know, in with page rank or other kinds of like rank ordered information like, you know, that we're used to getting on the web in lots of contexts. Um, we, we can, you know, there's a point of view. Somebody, th- something, so either the, the AI or people thought this was the best thing through the least important thing. With large language models and the way in which the output ha- happens, there isn't even a rank order in that way. So that is going to make this harder to, again, disambiguate in this. You don't see a person. It's not your like racist uncle who's commenting on the Facebook, and so you know, like, what's happening, right? And so I think these are going to be um, real challenges. And then the question will be what happens when these open, like, large language model systems start to converge, and they're talking across one another. They're not going to be able to contain that either, the makers of these technologies. So that's going to make the point of view even harder.
0: Yeah, and it, it, so that disambiguation, that's um, when we met last week to talk, that was sort of one of the things that... That I'm really interested in is um, how much harder it is to uh, identify and and address racism the deeper it's embedded in the system and and so Michelle Alexander in the New Jim Crow talks about this with you know slavery was uh, was an abomination but it was extremely overt it was out in the open which made it easy to spot and eventually you know more or less uh, abolished it was replaced by Jim Crow which was also explicit, but had this separate but equal thing. So there was a, another level of abstraction. And now with mass incarceration, you know, when you wrote your book and when you were doing research 10, 12 years ago, Google research for black girls were easy to spot the difference, or Google photos tagging black faces as gorillas were easy to spot. Now that those overt examples are cleaned up, how much harder is it with something like Chat GPT to identify where there are problems in the system and how to how to root them out.
1: It's going to be very difficult and I think um, you know already chat GPT like is um, has been programmed to put up disclaimers that it some of its results might be biased, right? Or if you ask it questions about race um, uh, gender, I've noticed it leans toward this kind of colorblindness. That means that people think also that, uh, you know, there's empathy or like some type of recognition that's happening in these systems that, you know, that bad things could happen. And um, it's also like it's legal disclaimer, but it's not really, it doesn't appear that way. It doesn't, it's not as explicit of like the legalese of a terms of service agreement, right? It's more of like these empathic responses that have been programmed in. Um, yet and still you're gonna get racist content out of these. So I think that is um really troubling and um the the obscuring is happening. I think there's also there's like the content of what happens, like what what these uh Predictive pattern recognition technologies predict and output. But there's also the entire labor-like supply chain ecosystem that it takes for something like the electronics-filled realities that we live in in the West to happen. These companies outsource so much of that kind of labor that's exploitive. Um, to the global south, right, to uh, countries of the global majority, we could call it. And um, I think that also is part of the obfuscation, like the incredible energy impact of these systems, the the kind of um, labor, you know, we're always talking about software engineers, when we talk about tech, we're not talking about Colton miners, we're not talking about e-waste workers, people who actually have to disassemble the electronics, who have cancer, by the time they're 30, because they've been working in these um, in e waste sites since they were children, um, that that kind of exploitation is also obfuscated when we talk about things like open AI and large language models. And I am really committed to making those parts more visible, because I think if we knew what it cost us in terms of human beings, human life... Um, Environmental degradation and so forth. We would, we would say, why do we want this? The modern day enslavements that are happening around the world. The modern day harms that have just been offshored. They're not right here in your household, in your neighborhood, in the same way in the United States as they as they were before. Um, but this is why we need these kinds of solidarities around the world um, as workers and to understand our work. In relationship to other people's work
0: you know some of the folks who are listening today certainly people who work in indeed and and other people might be in some positions of power technological political organizational what would you want someone listening to take away from this conversation uh, in terms of what what they can do to to be aware of and try to address these dangers of algorithmic bias
1: justice and the right things are like a million decisions, everyday decisions that we make, all of us, all the time. Um, there's not just some big meteor of justice that's going to hit the planet, do you know. Which probably is not the right metaphor because that seems like that would be terrible. So you know, there's not going to be a wave of of cooling breeze, justice breeze that's going to you know skim our faces and make it right. It's going to be millions of everyday decisions that we make in service of the right things. So those are the things that I think, you know, employees, um, companies, workers can feel empowered around and should be empowered to be able to do that. And of course that means having facility with the kinds of conversations that you and I have facility with. I mean, I rarely talk to corporate CEOs who have the facility who are like quoting Michelle Alexander at me. So get it, Chris, um, But, you know, the facility and ease with these kinds of conversations is really important. And I think that, um, you know, that would be the thing that I would say is don't feel like you need to leave this work to be done by others. You can do it in your own work, in your own decision-making processes, diversifying your supply chain, diversifying your employee workforce, thinking about the technology that you make. Does it facilitate discrimination or does it intervene upon it? How do you educate um, clients to understand that, You know, the circuitous route to success doesn't look like necessarily you were valedictorian and then you went to Stanford and then you came to work here. You know, maybe you had all these kinds of experiences that don't look like um, the model, what the model would predict for success, because that AI model is part of the problem, right? That success and um, matching clients with employees, you know, maybe what they need is, you know the person they never would have imagined, and that is the kind of um, facilitation that your company does, and the kind of education that also has to go with it. Um, so, I I think you know we're all in it together. Is the bottom line?
0: I'd like to close with the same question that we always ask at the end, and um, in reference to last week when we were talking, you you said at one point this is not. An optimistic moment. Um, However, I like to always end with the question, given everything that we've been through as a world um, over the last few years, what, if anything, has left you with some hope for the future?
1: Um, Men don't shout at conferences at me anymore. These are common sense conversations that more and more people are having. I hear arguments made on the internet and in the classroom, and Um, you know, around the dinner table that are common sense today that were not common sense a decade ago. And so I think part of that is because there's more harm, there's more consequence, there's more um, negative output from these systems. But we also have a a, a real awakening uh, of awareness about those harms. You know, there really are um, hundreds of thousands of people around the world who are developing acute expertise in these conversations and are really trying to do the interventions that we need. And that makes me feel um, incredibly helpful.
0: Dr. Safia Noble, thank you so much for joining us today, for sharing your experience and your uh, incredible research. And thank you for everything you do to help uh, enlighten the world.
1: Thank you. Thanks for having me.
0: It's really an honor. Here to Help is a production of Indeed. Today's episode was produced by Aidan McLaughlin, Ivan Fallon, and David Hartstein, Shelby Haddon, and the Blue Suitcase Productions team in Austin, Texas, with technical support from Edward Blizniak and Jacob Bennett. Our theme music was composed by Noah Golombos and Noah Nelson. Thanks for listening to Here to Help. Don't forget to like, subscribe, and download the podcast to stay up to date with the latest episodes. Until next time.